more broadly. So um, let's start with the councils of war and then we'll move on to the cabinet. I'm gonna discuss uh, the similar reasons that Washington convened both of these bodies, the strategies that he used to manage them, and then what perhaps the legacy is for us today when we think about the president and the cabinet. So councils of war were initially a British tradition. They were something that Washington attended as first a officer in the Virginia regiment and then as a part of General Braddock's official family as an aide-de-camp. Uh, the culture of councils of war really shifted depending on who was in charge. So each officer could create his own atmosphere and run them in their own way. But it was sort of expected that when Washington became the commander in chief, he would take over and he would have councils of war. He certainly anticipated that he would. And in fact, the Continental Congress in their instructions to him when they first gave him the position encouraged him to, um, to call councils of war for advice and for support. So when Washington convened a council of war, typically they were meeting in wherever his headquarters were. Usually he invited his subordinate officers and his aides to comp. Sometimes he invited uh, local people to provide guidance or support. Some of the places that they met were places like Longfellow House, which were his uh, first headquarters outside of Cambridge. The Morris Jumel Mansion, which still stands just up um, the peninsula in New York. And you can see in the, the large room to the right, it was a very grand space. It had a lot of room for different participants to come and, and sit comfortably and have conversation. Some of the other locations were maybe not quite as comfortable. Washington had his headquarters tent, which he certainly hosted officers and aides at. And even though it was larger than most officers' tents, it is still a tent. And it was a little bit small and cramped and usually didn't have a whole lot of seating space. The building on the left was Arthur St. Clair's headquarters during the Battle of Trenton and when Washington decided that they needed to have a last minute council of war. He didn't really have time to find a larger space and so they all crammed into the front parlor and basically had to take out all furniture so that there would be room for enough people to come into the room. Now there were several different reasons that Washington might convene a council of war. The first is to provide political cover for controversial decisions. The second is to build consensus among the officers to try and have some unanimity among them and to sort of all move forward on the same page. And the final, of course, was to actually get advice and support and learn from other people, which I, I will come back to this theme again and again, but one of Washington's greatest strengths as, lead, as a leader was his understanding of his own weaknesses and what he didn't know. And so his ability to ask for help and seek out information from others was really a, a crucial part of both his generalship and also his presidency. So of course I have to start with the New York campaign. How could I not? Um, it is a great example of Washington convening a council of war for political cover. Now, unfortunately, um, for the history of the New York campaign, it was one of Washington's low moments in the war. He had retreat after retreat and defeat after defeat, and first all the way across Long Island and all the way across the Manhattan uh, Peninsula and then into New Jersey and finally into Pennsylvania. So not particularly a high moment for him. Um, and this was uh, very concerning because he understood the importance that New York held in the minds and hearts of his countrymen. It was a deep water port, so it was crucial for trade and for the possibility of growing the nation's economy. It was the second largest city in both um, in terms of size and importance only to Philadelphia. And so Congress and the American people really didn't want to let it go understandably. And so when Washington had to conduct retreat after retreat and basically give up all of this crucial territory, he knew that that was going to be a very unpopular decision. And so before issuing these orders to fall back again and again, he recognized that he needed to have some support to cover that decision. Because in addition to losing this land, they were usually giving up um, ammunition, cannons, uh, sometimes um, horses, wagons, other really essential materials. 
So he convened several councils of war over the course of the summer in 1776, the night before he ordered retreats. And he spoke with the officers and he asked them for their advice. And they, of course, um, all agreed that a retreat was essential because the alternatives were basically being captured or killed. And so those weren't very good options. And so he then had written evidence that the officers agreed with him and they had encouraged a retreat. And he would write up reports and send them to Congress, hoping that that news would get to Congress before it sort of trickled down through the other sources that the army had fallen back yet again. That way, if anyone criticized his leadership or his decision making, he had evidence that he could say, you know, it wasn't just me, it was the other officers, and this was the only option available to us. The second option was to build consensus among the officers. And the winter at Valley Forge is a really great example of why Washington needed to try and build some unity among the officers. So selecting winter quarters seems like kind of a trivial decision to us, but it was actually really important for a number of factors. Washington had to find a place that could support the army, had enough land and food and local farms that they could buy goods from. He needed to find a place that was close enough to the British Army in Philadelphia that they could kind of keep an eye on them and make sure the army didn't go willy-nilly about the countryside sort of terrorizing local citizens or um, go off in search of the Continental Congress. But he also had to be far enough away that he wasn't at risk of a surprise attack. And while he didn't really expect that there would be a winter campaign because that just generally wasn't how it was done, um, he still had to be prepared and he had to be far enough away that he wouldn't be caught off guard. So the officers had suggested a number of different locations. They had suggested splitting up the army into different sections to not put a burden on one community. And eventually they decided on a Valley Forge, which um, as we know now, sort of in retrospect, there, there really wasn't enough food and it wasn't a great location. But in order to get to that decision, Washington convened several councils of war through the end of October and into November. And after each council, he would also ask for written advice to make sure he understood what each officer was saying and to make sure he understood sort of their perspectives and that he was hearing all voices. And through this series of councils, he was basically able to get everyone to agree, even if they didn't totally love the decision, to agree on this location. Lastly, Washington, of course, convened councils for advice. And the battles of Trenton and Princeton are a great example of how this was really useful to Washington and confirmed his sense that he needed to get information from people who came from all walks of life and were sort of a different, um, offered different perspectives. So after Washington's fantastic surprise victory on Christmas in, in Trenton, Cornwallis marched down from, from Princeton and pinned Washington and the Continental Army against the Delaware River. Now, Washington had already crossed the river once, and he had been very lucky. There had been no losses, but the weather had really shifted, and he no longer had the element of surprise, and he wasn't particularly keen to try it again. That being said, the only other option was to enter into basically a frontal attack against the British Army to try and fight their way out. And that wasn't really a great solution either because one, the numbers were sort of um, similar. And so the cost in terms of life and ammunition was going to be incredibly high. And who knows what would happen? Maybe Washington would be killed or captured, which I would argue then would totally end the revolution. So Washington convened a council of war at that little yellow house that I showed you a few slides ago. And he put forth to his officers and said, what should I do? What should we do? These seem to me to be the only options and both of them kind of stink. He was actually quite literally stuck between a rock and river. And Arthur St. Clair suggested that he speak to some of the local soldiers who not only do they know the land from growing up in the area, but they had been sort of out searching to see what was going on, where the end of the British line was, if there was any other solution. And they had come across a footpath that went through a local farm and wasn't on any of the maps. And it would allow the army to go around the, the right side of the British flank and sneak up to Princeton undetected. So Washington said immediately like, well, that's a really fantastic option, but are you sure? And they called in the local farmers that owned the land to confirm that this path actually was there. 
So not only do you have, you know, the commander in chief of the Continental Army, who was one of the most famous Americans at that time, but he was asking for the input from local farmers. And I think that this shows his ability to ask for help from all um, aspects of society. After the farmers confirmed that that path did in fact exist, they wrapped up the wheels in rags, they, they built up these big fires and made lots of noise and commotion as though they were getting ready to attack the next morning. And the army slipped around the side of the British army and marched up to Princeton and did in fact surprise the British forces. And it was a huge ideological victory for the American army at that time. So when Washington convened his councils of war, um, whether it was for political reasons or for advice, he was dealing with a group of people who um, could not be called wallflowers. There were some very big personalities. They were very opinionated. They were very concerned with their honor and prestige and reputation and their own sort of military exploits. They were used to being listened to. They expected to be sort of respected. And there was a huge group of them. And um, they weren't always necessarily the most docile. So for example, Charles Lee, apparently everywhere he went, he brought a pack of hounds with him because he loved his dogs, which I love my dogs too. But if you have a hound and you've ever heard how they bay, it's not exactly the most conducive environment to um, a meeting or a discussion. They were very loud and disruptive. So sometimes Washington wasn't necessarily sure if he was hearing everyone. Some people perhaps were a little bit quieter and didn't really want to enter into the bickering or, or get you know, super boisterous. So Washington had a number of strategies to ensure that A, he gained, you know, he maintained control over the discussion, but B, that he heard from everybody and he gathered all of the information. So first, he would send out a list of questions ahead of time. And this just makes good sense because it allowed the officers to prepare their advice, to prepare their information, and to be ready to give him the, the best information they could. He would then use that list of questions as the agenda. And it didn't always work. And sometimes they went off, you know, on different tangents. But for the most part, he was able to sort of hold the conversation together. And then lastly, if the soldiers disagreed, which frankly was more often than not, he would ask for written opinions afterwards. And this was essential because, again, it allowed him to make sure he was hearing from everyone. And even if his final decision didn't necessarily um, go along with what everyone said, it made the officers feel like they were heard and they were valuable, which is a really crucial emotional intelligence piece that is often overlooked. Washington also liked to make decisions a little bit slowly. He would consider all of the information, he would study it, and then once he made a decision, he tended to enforce it with firmness and alacrity, but it took him sometimes a little while to get there. And so this method of decision-making worked incredibly well. So, um, oh, and the last piece, I can't believe I almost forgot this. This is so crucial for, for our location or our unofficial location tonight. Um, Washington was very aware of the social component of running an army or running an executive branch. And so he was very attentive to trying to build up an esprit de corps among his officers. In the winter, they would invite their wives to come stay with them. They would have dances and balls and social gatherings and go out horseback riding. And he often, um, even in the middle of a campaign, would host dinners and um, supper for his officers. He got to know them. He supported these emotional bonds, recognizing that in the heat of battle or even in the midst of sort of a fiery debate, those relationships would help smooth over hurt feelings and would help people work towards a common cause. And this, of course, is obvious in the historical record because when he went to say goodbye to his officers at Francis Tavern in December of 1783, many of them wept because they loved him and respected him so much. So he did have much more emotional intelligence than I think people typically give him credit for. So when Washington was called back to service at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, he brought with him this experience. And he was, as pictured in this um, image here on the screen, he was um, unanimously chosen as the president of the Constitutional Convention. He did not miss a single session. He usually sat with the Virginia delegation and he voted. 
And after each day's work, he would socialize with the other delegates, many of whom were his closest friends. They would go to the theater, they would drink tea, they would go listen to music and have dinner and play cards. And so he knew them well, he knew what their decisions were, he knew the reasoning behind their opinions. And he was there when the delegates explicitly rejected a proposal for a cabinet that looked very similar to what eventually was created. And he understood that it was the expectation of the delegates that a cabinet or a council would not exist in the executive branch. Instead, there were two options that were available to the president. The first is that the Senate would advise and consent on treaties and foreign appointments. Now, from the 21st century perspective, we often think of the Senate as either a veto or a rubber stamp on treaties and appointments. That's kind of what we think of their role. But the delegates to the Constitutional Convention really expected that the Senate would play an active role, that they would provide advice, that they would be supportive, that the president would go visit with them and, you know, ask for their input. And it made a little bit more sense when it was only 24 people, because at that point, Rhode Island, of course, hadn't ratified the Constitution yet. And most of the delegates thought that the Senate would be a really safe advisory body because they were indirectly elected from the state legislature. So if they gave bad advice, they could be removed and sort of held responsible for their actions. So Washington entered office expecting to, to consult with the Senate. And sure enough, in August 1789, he went to go visit Federal Hall, which was in New York at that time. And that meeting went pretty badly. Washington wanted sort of that immediate feedback. He brought, a, he get, brought an address, which he gave, and he brought a list of questions like he had to his councils of war, and he was expecting debate and sort of various opinions and he could choose from. And instead, the Senate wanted to refer it to a private committee and they wanted to discuss it secretly and then they wanted him to come back a week later and they were going to give him his recommendation. And that was very frustrating to Washington. He got very angry and he yelled at them. And um, he, he did calm down and he agreed to come back the following week. But on his way out, he reportedly said that he would never go back for advice. Now, I'm not sure if he actually said that, but in this case, actions speak louder than words. And sure enough, he never went back for advice. So right away, this option that the delegates to the Constitutional Convention had planned out to support the president um, failed. The second option was that the president could request written advice from the department secretaries on issues pertaining to their department. And this clause was crafted very carefully. They wanted the advice to be in writing because then there would be a trail of evidence. There would be um, cl a clear paper trail of who said what and who advocated what and who was responsible for bad decisions and who was responsible for bad policies. They didn't want there to be a secret group that was meeting behind closed doors with no transparency and it was unclear who was responsible for the final decision. So initially Washington um, from the president's house, this is what the president's house in Philadelphia would have looked like. It was on the corner of 6th and Market or 6th and High Streets. Unfortunately, it no longer exists, but I've done a little 3D recreation here for you. So initially he wrote letters and he would write letters to his secretaries and they would write letters back. But if we think about today when we're, you know, writing an email or sending a text message, oftentimes things get lost in translation or the tone isn't totally clear, or maybe you forgot something and you have a follow-up email. But now try and imagine doing that with parchment and quill. So you have to write out the letter, you have to let it dry, then you have to have it be delivered, then you have to wait for the other person to write it out and let it dry and have it get delivered back. Now what happens if you have follow-up questions? Because the issues that were facing Washington and Knox and Jefferson and Hamilton were incredibly complex and they were tricky and they had never dealt with them before. So Washington immediately decided that that just really wasn't, it wasn't working, it wasn't efficient. And so what he would do is he would send a letter and they would send a letter back, but then they would have a one-on-one -on -one meeting. And they would come and they would meet with him in his private study. And this is sort of, I think, what the private study would have looked like. Um, and they would sort of hash out all the details. And that worked for about a year and a half um, until November 26, 1791, Washington did one-on-one -on -one meetings. 
But then in November, he really decided that he was faced with all these sort of economic diplomatic issues that were so big that they couldn't really fit into one department because they had an economic side, they had a diplomatic side, they had a war side. And so he convened his first cabinet meeting. And um, this picture shows the participants. Actually, I think poor Edmund Randolph is covered perhaps by our faces, which is his lot in life, unfortunately. But from left to right, there's Washington, Secretary of War Henry Knox, Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton, Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, and then behind our faces is Attorney General Edmund Randolph. And although this first meeting didn't actually come to, to much of anything, they met to discuss potential treaties and economic relationships with France and Great Britain. The things that they discussed really uh, laid out the issues that would capture the cabinet's attention for the rest of Washington's presidency. Now, again, when Washington was pulling together these secretaries, these were not quiet people. They had opinions, they were loud, they wanted to be heard, and they expected to be um, listened to and respected. And so Washington had to find a way to manage these personalities and manage their interactions with the cabinet. And he really relied on his council of war experience. Um, he used the same strategies. He would send out a list of questions ahead of time, use that list of questions for his agenda, and then request written opinions if they disagreed, which frankly, by 1792 was most of the time, because as fans of Hamilton will know, Hamilton and Jefferson did not get along and did not see eye to eye on almost anything. He also convened cabinet meetings for many of the same purposes. So for example, in 1796, when Washington decided to assert executive privilege for the first time, when the House of Representatives was asking for access to papers pertaining to the debates around Jay's treaty, and he said, basically said no, he gathered the cabinet and he asked for their advice and he asked for their written opinions to make sure they all agreed that this was the right thing to do before taking a potentially very controversial decision. In 1793, when war broke out between France and Great Britain, and the United States was really consumed with trying to stay neutral in this international conflict, Washington brought together the, secret the secretaries 51 times in 1793 to try and build consensus, to try and find a middle ground between Jefferson, who wanted sort of a pro-French neutrality, and Hamilton, who wanted a pro-British neutrality, and see if they could agree on sort of a middle ground compromise solution. And lastly, in 1794, when the Whiskey Belt Rebellion broke out in Western Pennsylvania, this is a picture of a homemade still, which was pretty common in that region. A lot of the farmers would use their excess grains and distill it into whiskey or liquor to trade and barter and use sort of as a form of currency because shipping it was really difficult to get it to Eastern ports. So when the rebellion broke out, Washington genuinely needed advice because he had a couple of options. He could leave it to Congress to deal with when they came back in session later in the fall. He could convene an emergency session of Congress. He could leave it to the states to handle since technically it was a Pennsylvania issue. Or he could sort of take active, um, he could assert active executive powers and uh, decide what he was going to do and potentially use the military. And so the cabinet came up with a very creative solution, which was that he would send out peace commissioners to the Western region to demonstrate that all peaceful options had been utilized while getting the state militias ready to go just in case a, a peace commission failed, which in fact it did. And eventually Washington sent the Virginia Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland um, militias out to crush the rebellion. But the cabinet was essential in that process because not only did they come up with the solution, but they helped him manage all of the different personalities and the different authorities, including the Pennsylvania authorities, work through um, this domestic crisis. So towards the end of Washington's presidency, he actually backed away from in-person cabinet meetings once sort of his original cast of characters retired or resigned. I think he didn't really trust the replacements quite as much and, or perhaps he trusted his own judgment or he just felt like they had already established precedents and so he didn't need that sort of support in that way. And in doing so, he really emphasized that the cabinet was a private 
advisory body to be used at the president's discretion. The cabinet secretaries were not entitled to be a part of the decision-making process. They did not have an institutionalized power as part of the um, executive governing authority. It was really up to the president. And Washington also established that uh, the president's closest advisors were up to his, or hopefully at some point, her decision. So towards the end of his presidency, Washington frequently convened one-on-one -on -one with Secretary of State Edmund Randolph. He often asked for the advice of Alexander Hamilton, even though he was no longer in the administration. And this established a crucial precedent which continues to sort of govern and lead presidents today. While the cabinet is much larger and much more institutionalized, the National Security Council exists, and of course that wasn't there in the 1790s, each president still gets to decide who their closest advisors are going to be. Sometimes they choose vice presidents, like Obama and Biden were incredibly close. Sometimes there are particular cabinet secretaries that presidents really uh, rely on. So for example, Grant was incredibly close to Hamilton Fish, his secretary of state. Sometimes they choose family members, like Kennedy was really close to his brother, who happened to also be his attorney general. Sometimes it's friends or business acquaintances or other people that they know. And those relationships all take place pretty much outside any sort of congressional or public oversight. So that is a legacy of Washington's that I think most people don't appreciate. I would argue that the cabinet is the most important precedent that Washington established and perhaps one of the most underappreciated. Um, and I encourage you to think about the cabinet as part of presidential leadership when you're examining American history and um, you know, our, our future American history as it is yet to come. So thank you guys so much for your attention. I am thrilled to enter into the question and answer session because to be honest, that's actually my, always my favorite part. I love to, to know what you want to know more about and to be able to answer those questions. So um, what are your questions and how can I answer them for you? Great, thank you so much, Lindsay. That was so interesting. Um, I'm going to turn things over to our programs and events assistant, Mary Chaltas Ademanelli, who is going to moderate our Q&A. Uh, so remember, if you have any questions, please drop them in the chat box. Okay, our first question, let's get started. What is always clear what the cabinet positions, was it always clear what the cabinet positions would be or did it change over time? Great question. So um, the, the, the department secretaries actually originally started during the Revolutionary War under the Confederation Congress. And there was a Department of Foreign Affairs, a Department of Treasury, um, a Board of War, but they reported to Congress. But there was generally a sense that like departments were needed because you couldn't have these really important parts of the government being run by committees because that didn't work very well. So in the summer of 1789, um, the first federal Congress created the first three departments, the State Department, the War Department, and the Treasury Department. And then the Attorney General was really more of almost like a private lawyer for the executive branch. He didn't have a Department of Justice initially. So it was always agreed upon that those ones would exist but then there, of course, there have been um, more additions, there have been changes. We obviously don't have a war department anymore that's been split into defense and Navy. Um, and so they, they have morphed, but those original three were sort of the, were always the expectation. Great. I saw a buzzword, I saw Hamilton somewhere, so that's always a good question to ask. Skulky asks, how did Washington handle the disagreements between Hamilton and Jefferson? It's a great question. So Washington actually, I think, I mean, he didn't, he didn't necessarily say this, so we have to read his actions, but it is my sense that he really actually appreciated the disagreements because if Hamilton and Jefferson were presenting conflicting opinions, 
he didn't have to think about what are the weaknesses to Jefferson's argument because Hamilton was going to point them out and vice versa. And so it was almost a way to stress test different positions and a way for him to think about, um, you know, what, what, what was his final solution that was going to merge the, the sort of pros and cons of both sides. And Hamilton didn't really mind the conflict too much. Jefferson, of course, hated it. He hated conflict of any kind. And so I think that's sort of one of the, one of the reasons he, you know, retired when he did. Um, but I think Washington, he did not mind the conflict at all. These are all fabulous questions. I'm going to hope to get to all of them. Uh, Jennifer asks, was Washington a Federalist? What about the other founding fathers? Great question. So this is kind of, well, there isn't really a great answer to this because Washington really didn't like political parties. He felt that they were um, damaging and negative. He also had a very thin skin, so he hated the criticism. And actually one of my favorite stories, to be honest, is um, first Bosch, or first Frenot, and then Bosch, who were two editors of newspapers in Philadelphia that ended up being very critical of the Washington administration. Um, Washington loved newspapers. And so whenever there was a new newspaper, he would subscribe. And when Freneau and then Bosch became critical of him, he would cancel his subscription, but they were determined to mess with him. And so they would still deliver three copies every single day to the president's house just to like get under his skin. <laughs> and there is um, this great story where he's in a cabinet meeting and he's like yelling about it because he's so frustrated because he knows they're just doing it to piss him off. Um, but so he really didn't like that sort of partisan conflict. He ended up agreeing more with the Federalists than the Republicans because he felt like Republicans were a little bit too prone to anarchy. And he was, you know, he believed in strong central government. He believed in a strong executive, but he wasn't necessarily like a high Federalist like Hamilton was later on. He was definitely much more moderate. So in today's terms, I think you would call it like a centrist. So he did definitely lean Federalist, but not, not like Hamilton. Okay. To go more into that, Robert Wong asked, well, did Washington ever regret a council of war decision he made? Yes. Um, so, you know, one of the, one of the things about um, Washington, like all humans, is he was deeply flawed and he made bad choices. And I think it's really important we acknowledge those choices because it's so much more interesting and so much more beneficial to look at a flawed human who, who ended up creating great things than like sort of a perfect marble-like bust because that's impossible to replicate and, and doesn't really do much for us today. Um, so I think one of Washington's uh, regrets were splitting up his army in New York. That's generally a no-no if you can help it by military doctrine. Um, the Battle of Monmouth, which of course is sort of memorialized in uh, the Hamilton musical as well. He initially, he, he basically changed his mind several times about what the plan of attack was going to be. And so it led to a lot of confusion about who was in charge and what sort of numbers. And it was a very complicated attack plan. And it ended up being like 105 degrees that day. And they got a late start. And so it was just a mess from the beginning. So I think he regretted that he didn't take more firm, decisive action from, from the beginning and have a more simplified plan. Great. Uh, Jay Pickett asks, was Washington's style unique to him or were there other leaders of the time that were similar to him or that he tried to emulate? Um, that is a great question. A very so, loaded question. <laughs> it's a very loaded question. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, it's hard to compare Washington to anyone at that time because by 1789, um, he is so unparalleled, at least in the United States, in terms of his stature, that it's really hard to say that he followed this one model. Um, I think he learned from his mistakes, which was huge. He knew what he didn't want to replicate in terms of sort of like how the governors worked at the state level or how the British cabinet operated. Um, in terms of leadership since then, several presidents have emulated his um, style. So 
for example, I, I saw in the questions there that there are lots of questions about Lincoln and the team of rivals. So um, Washington, actually chapter two of my book is called the original team of rivals because uh, Washington did the same thing. It was actually very common for presidents to pull together rivals from the same party into their, into their cabinets. That was pretty common practice. And Lincoln, I think, used a lot of the same strategies. He was happy to have his secretaries sort of debated out. He was more than willing to say what he didn't know um, and what, you know, what he needed help with. Lincoln used, I think, humor and storytelling to sort of smooth things over more than Washington did. So there were certainly some differences. Grant employed a lot of the same strategies as Washington, actually, and maybe that's sort of a military perspective. But he, um, again, was more than more than willing to say, I don't know this, please help me with it. He was willing to delegate. He was willing to sort of trust the people that he worked with. So I think a lot of people have tried to emulate a lot of Washington's strengths since then and with varying degrees of success. <laughs> awesome. Uh, I saw one question that was a little kind of cutesy. Did Washington discuss issues with Martha? Great question. So Could she have been part of his council of war. So um, one of my greatest regrets as a historian is that, as you may all know, um, Washington, uh, Martha burned their correspondence after Washington died. And we believe that that's at Washington's request. Um, there are a couple of reasons. It's possible that, you know, he had cultivated this image of sort of a disinterested, um, public serving honorable man and maybe didn't want letters that revealed anger or frustration or pettiness or jealousy or, you know, you name it. It's also possible they had a, um, a scandalous, you know, correspondence and they didn't want people reading their intimate letters. Who knows what the reason is? So we don't really know how much they talked about um, political or military issues. If I had to guess, though, based on sort of, we have two remaining letters, and based on sort of what people have written about their relationship and their contemporaries wrote about their relationship, she was a great comfort to him. She was a partner in that she made him feel like he was home wherever she happened to be. That's one of the reasons he wanted her at winter quarters every winter during the Revolutionary War, and why it was so important that uh, she was, you know, there during the entire presidency because she really made it home. Um, I think that she probably offered support in that way. I don't think she engaged in political conversation or in military strategy. So unlike Abigail Adams, who was constantly offering her political opinion to John Adams, um, including, you know, famously, remember the ladies, I don't think that Martha was taking that active a role in that way if I had to guess. Um, again, we don't really have evidence of this, but it seems like they perhaps had a little bit more of a traditional marriage in that way, but she, she was absolutely essential to him. They were absolutely partners, just a little bit more of an old-fashioned partnership. Interesting. Every wife has a different narrative, I think. Yes. I saw one that I had. Dennis asks, how did Washington's cabinet structure reflect the advisors uh, to the British king, or did it kind of reflect how King George handled his council or where would Washington get that influence from? Yes. So the British cabinet was what I call sort of a, um, a non-origin. So the, the British cabinet originally came from the Privy Council and the Privy Council was designed to basically run the government on behalf of the king and to help the king run the government. Um, but it got quite large and uh, really wasn't efficient. And so the king started pulling off some of his favorite advisors to go meet in a little tiny room off of the Privy, Privy Council chambers. And that little tiny room was called the King's Cabinet. So this group of favorites became known as the Cabinet Council, and then eventually Council was dropped. And Americans knew that it existed. They didn't always know who was in it. They didn't really know who was in charge. They didn't really know who was the favorite. They didn't really know who was making decisions. And that made them very nervous and very uncomfortable because they wanted transparency at, at the highest levels of the British government. And this was when they were actually in, you know, a part of, a part of the empire. 
Um, then once conflict started to happen, they blamed the cabinet for the hated legislation that sparked the war, like the Stamp Act and the Intolerable Acts. And so Washington and the secretaries were very aware of this distrust um, by Americans of the British cabinet. And they were very wary of being compared to the British cabinet. And so um, the, the main, there, there are two ways that we see this sort of unfold in the American version. First, Washington refuses to use the word cabinet during his presidency. So by 1792, everyone else is referring to this group as the cabinet. Madison will often write letters to Jefferson and say, you know, did you talk about this in the cabinet? I'm doing this as though he's typing. He's not typing, he's writing. That's just sort of my <laughs> 21st century hand gestures. Um, and Hamilton and Jefferson, when they were writing notes, they would talk about, you know, cabinet deliberations and cabinet discussions. But Washington refuses to use the word until he retires. And then he refers to it as John Adams' cabinet. So obviously he knew that it existed. He knew that that's what people were calling it. But I think he was so concerned about the comparison that he preferred to call them either the gentlemen of my family, like his official family, or um, the secretaries. And the second part is that um, the secretaries were very aware that the main criticism of the British cabinet was that they took too much authority away from the king. And so you couldn't tell who, who to hold responsible for bad decisions. And so when they worked to increase executive power, they were not doing so to try and increase their power. They were trying to increase the president's authority and they were working to boost the president. And what's fascinating is, you know, 10 years after the end of the war, when Washington has this cabinet, people aren't criticizing Washington and they aren't criticizing the institution. They criticize individuals when they appear to look too much like British ministers. So when it seems like maybe Hamilton has too much power to influence things in the treasury and in Congress, they start calling him Robert Walpole or Lord North, who were two of the most hated British ministers. So that's really where we see the, the comparison breakdown and the differences. Interesting. Uh, to go along with more Hamilton Jefferson stuff, uh, that was a fabulous question. Marianne Alves asks, if Washington had the chance to pick his cabinet all over again, would he pick the same members? Oh, wow. That was <laughs> quite a good counterfactual. <laughs> Could you imagine in 2020 who he would pick? <laughs> um, no. You know, I actually said one <laughs> the other day, if you were picking a cabinet, who would you pick? And I was like, oh, that's such a hard question. Um, so, you know, I'm not... It's like a March Madness if, bracket. That's just not exactly. Um, I think that if he was starting from the beginning and if he didn't have the benefit of hindsight, so if he was going, you know, just from scratch, I think he would do the same thing because he had a couple of criteria that were really important to him. First, he had to know them and trust them, which makes sense. If you're going to have advisors, you want to know them and trust them, right? Mm -hmm. Second, they had to have expertise, knowledge, or experience that was different than his own because he didn't speak French, and he, which was the language of diplomacy, and he had only been outside of the country once when he was a teenager to go to Barbados. So he needed a secretary of state that had diplomatic experience. Um, he wasn't a lawyer. He had never been trained in, you know, understanding legal matters. So Edmund Randolph was a brilliant legal mind and had been the attorney general for the state of Virginia and had been the governor of Virginia. So he was an essential part to be able to provide that sort of constitutional input to Washington. Um, so that was a really important factor for him. The final factor is he wanted to represent people who, or he wanted to choose people who represented different parts of the country. Now, obviously, representation in 1789 looks differently than in 2021. These are all white men, but um, they came from different regions. They represented different economic interests. So Jefferson was a slave-owning plantation owner from Virginia, whereas Hamilton cozied up to the merchant trade elite in New York City. And so they spoke for very different parts of the nation. They, they had different religions. I mean, they were all... Um, Christian, but they had different sort of sects and practices. They had different economic backgrounds and training. And that's actually a precedent that for the most part has been followed up through at least recent administrations. And of course, again, our, our definition of diversity has expanded. And so now we include gender and race 
and religion and um, maybe sexual, you know, orientation in in our in those definitions. But um, that is a very important part of cabinet building because it allows you to bring people into your administration and to allow them to feel that they are a part of the government and they are represented and it, it builds really important emotional ties. So I think initially he would have, he would have chosen the same people. Jefferson did end up causing him a lot of trouble in the long run, but initially he would have. That's fair. I'm going to throw in a different founding father. Uh, David Richard asks, could you please characterize re the relationship between Benjamin Franklin and George Washington? Because I feel like they over they overlap a lot, but he they never do. quite, he um, never quite makes it there. Yes, Ed Larson has a fantastic book that um, came out fairly recently about this subject. What's amazing about Franklin and Washington is actually how much they overlap or how similar their experiences are in different ways. So during the Seven Years' War, they're both trying to deal with their, you know, border defense for their own states and trying to build up the militias and the state defenses. They're both at the Constitutional Convention together during the Revolutionary War. Washington is, of course, leading the army, but Franklin is in France trying to secure a crucial um, ally, a crucial treaty that had provides um, really important money and arms and support. So they're often working towards the same aim from very different perspectives or from different positions. I don't know that they were super close buddy-buddy. I don't know that that many people were buddy-buddy with Washington to begin with, but I don't know that they were super close, um, but they had tremendous respect for one another. They sought out each other's opinions. They sought out each other's company when they were both in the same place, and they were very respectful of where the other person was coming from. So, for example, um, the, the way Larson opens up his book is when Washington goes to visit Franklin at the beginning of the Constitutional Convention, and Larson speculates that Washington probably walked from his home to Franklin's because it would have been inappropriate for him to take his carriage because the carriage was driven and manned by enslaved servants. And Franklin was at this point pretty vocally abolitionist. So it's just really interesting to see how, how their thinking um, evolves on the same issues sort of on, um, on the same path almost, but in wildly, from two wildly different places. It's, it's a really amazing story. Definitely. Uh, I got a great question from Stephen Frew, who says, what was Washington's daily routine? What time did he get up and when did he retire? How many meetings did he have and when? So what did his day normally look like when he was meeting with his cabinet or when he was president? Sure. Um, so Washington, um, that should, should probably surprise no one who's done a little bit of reading or, or, you know, listening about him was very regimented. Um, he had his, you know, strict daily schedule and, and did the same things every day. And he usually got up before the sun rose. He usually did some work. He had a light breakfast. He got dressed. Um, he would often then go out writing. Writing was his favorite form of exercise. Um, so he got writing, he would come back. If the cabinet was meeting during the day, they often would meet at 10. The secretaries would come over to his house. Sometimes it was a short meeting. If the meeting went for many hours, which it sometimes did, the secretaries would often stay for a family dinner, which usually was in the early afternoon. He would then do more letter writing. They would usually have a light supper in the evening. So the big meal of the day was in the early afternoon. Um, he would off, he usually took a daily walk in the afternoon wherever he was. Um, and this was really important because it demonstrated, he didn't go walking for exercise. That's what he rode for. His daily walk demonstrated that he was the same as any other citizen. And um, it demonstrated that his boots essentially got muddy too. And this was a crucial symbol that many Americans understood. They, they understood the messaging he was trying to convey. Um, he would have a light supper, uh, usually that they had family time in the evening, whether it was reading. Um, Nellie would often play music. Um, Washington also played. Um, and then they would go to sleep. Um, when he was home at Mount Vernon, he did a loop on horseback every day to all of his plantations. Um, which sometimes took several hours to check in on things daily. He was very meticulous with his details. All right. I think I might ask the last question myself. 
Okay. <laughs> All right. So some of the first government offices were at 54 Pearl Street at Francis Tavern Museum. What did the average day look like for John Jay and Henry Knox and Alexander Hamilton? So I knew that they would go to their offices, but the first cabinet truly was like the bare bones minimum. What were they doing? What were they trying to accomplish? Did Washington give them any specific direction at that time? Um, great question. So um, it depends what they were, it depends what time of year it was. So um, if John Jay was on his circuit riding, he would ride through several states. And so he was only in New York and then in Philadelphia for a short portion of every year. Um, but he always would meet with Washington before he left town, which I think is a very interesting little tidbit. Um, so the secretaries usually established offices across the street or like within a block of their homes. Um, I at one point put together a map of where they all lived and worked in Philadelphia and basically it was a 12 block um, square and Jefferson lived on one side and Hamilton lived on the other side, um, of course, and Washington's house was kind of in the middle, but they always, oh, they usually had offices like right across the street from their home. Um, they were incredibly busy because as you said, it was sort of a bare bones structure. Uh, the treasury department had the most number of clerks, but even then it was a fairly small enterprise and they were overseen, um, was overseen, uh, you know, a huge sort of, um, crew of collections, um, officers and customs officers in the ports across the country. Um, so from a day-to-day -day perspective with their interactions with Washington, Washington pretty much oversaw all major correspondence that came into their office. They would usually send it to him with their suggested reply and he would approve it or make a couple of notes and send it back. But by and large, when it came to the bureaucracy that they were overseeing, he gave them a lot of leeway and a lot of trust to handle those issues. He wanted to kind of see the letters to know what was going on, but he trusted them to handle those issues within their little departments themselves. Um, they corresponded and at least had some sort of interaction almost every single day with Washington. They often had cabinet meetings on Saturdays, so wasn't a weekend like we necessarily think of it today, although never on Sundays. Um, and, but they worked incredibly long hours as well. And um, even like in 1793, when there was a yellow fever outbreak, Knox didn't leave the city until late August because he was very concerned that there wasn't going to be someone to sort of handle um, handle affairs for the government because Washington was already at Mount Vernon and Jefferson was already gone and Hamilton was really, really sick. And so Knox stayed in the city long past when most people who had the means to flee did because he wanted to be there in case anything came up. So these were not cushy jobs. The, the pay was pretty low and they were kind of thankless tasks and they worked incredibly hard. Awesome. All right, that was our last question. I'm gonna hand it back over to Sarah. Great. Uh, thank you, Mary, for moderating our Q&A. And thank you, Lindsay, for the great presentation and the really great answers. Uh, and thank oh. all of you for submitting such great questions. Some of those were like really, really thought provoking. Yes, that's all. I'm seeing a lot of applause in the camera. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, like I said, thank you for joining us today. This is our first virtual lecture, but we are planning on having more. We've missed out on quite a few lectures uh, since the museum hasn't been open to the public. So hopefully we're going to make up for that and more. Um, you can keep an eye on the museum's website, social media for future lectures and programs. Uh, you can join the mailing list. I know some of you did when you registered, you'll be added, you'll get all of our email updates so you'll know when their next lecture is. If you enjoyed tonight's program and you're able, please consider making a donation to the museum. These donations help keep the museum alive, help keep our mission of sharing the American Revolution alive, um, and any amount is greatly appreciated. Once again, thank you for joining us. Have a wonderful rest of your evening or day if you're coming to us from a different time zone, and we hope to see you again soon. All right.